We're turning back to the Word of God tonight, to the book of John and to the chapter 10. The book of John and the chapter 10. Next Lord's Day, I will not be here as I'll be preaching in Liverpool. Uh, the reason being, while well, I'm still technically in charge of the congregation there, though COVID has made that uh, rather difficult over the past uh, couple of years or so now, but there is a funeral there on Monday week, uh, a dear old saint of the Lord who was very faithful to the work when she was able to be there, but of recent years has not been able to be out at all, but she has passed on, and the family would very much like to have the funeral service back in the church for her, and that was just confirmed as Monday week, and I'll go and take the funeral service, but I haven't been preaching in Liverpool for a time, and we'll combine that, so we'll go probably on Saturday and preach there on Sunday and be there for the funeral on the Monday. Uh, this lady would date way, way back uh, to uh, not just Reverend Hillis Fleming's time, but even before he became the minister in the church over there. Uh, before it was a free Presbyterian church, it was a Reformed church, Protestant Reformers church on Netherfield Road in Liverpool, and she would have been a faithful attender even back then. We're looking at verse 29 through 20, 27, rather, 27 through 29 of John chapter 10, so we'll read that together. My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me, and I give unto them eternal life, and they shall never perish, neither shall any man pluck them out of my hand. My Father which gave them me is greater than all. And no man is able to pluck them out of my Father's hand. And so we're looking tonight at the topic, is God's salvation eternal? Is God's salvation eternal? And somebody will say, well, of course it has to be, because aren't we talking about salvation being eternal life? So therefore, it's got to be eternal. So we're looking at that issue tonight because we know it is a question on some people's hearts at least. So, is God's salvation eternal? We will be referring to the passage we have just read, but many other passages as well on our way through Scripture this evening. But let's bow together further in prayer as we come and seek the Lord again. Heavenly Father, we thank Thee for Thy Word. And we know there's all kinds of speculations, interpretations, ideas, and notions that we may bring to the book and try at times to impose those ideas upon it. And so, with a shoehorn, uh, we will try to fit uh, particular and loved truths that we have worn to over the years and on occasion been guilty of shoehorning them into some particular Bible passage. But Lord, may the Scripture speak for itself. May Scripture confirm Scripture. We know that our Savior said, search the Scriptures. They are they which testify of me. We know that Paul exhorted his young son in the faith, Timothy, about to take on the mantle of a preacher, preach the Word. Be instant in season, out of season. And so we come before thee tonight and pray that thou wilt allow the Word to interpret itself and therefore to impress itself. 
upon our minds and upon our hearts. Answer our prayer, encourage the hearts of thy people, restore the backslidden and cold of heart, we pray. We ask that thou wilt save the lost, bring them into the embrace of thy great and wonderful and free redemption, we pray for Jesus' sake and his glory. Amen. Can you imagine the emotional state of a child who does not know from day to day, one day following another, one week running into another, whether or not he is really a member of the family? Because today, since he's a good boy, he's been told, you're considered a member of our family, but tomorrow he knows, it happened last week, tomorrow if he misbehaves, then he'll be told, you no longer belong to us. Today he feels the love of his father, tomorrow he may not feel anything of that love at all. That child, quite frankly, would become very quickly a neurotic mess. The Bible teaches. And so we're going to be right up front, right from the start. You'll know where we're coming from from this statement, and of course, we make no apology for it if the Bible teaches this. Not only can the child of God know that he is saved, but he can be certain he will not lose that salvation. That's not because of his effort. That is not because of how good or wonderful or otherwise he is but it is because of what we will explain as we go through the work of God, a sovereign, powerful God alone. In other words, God is saying, as He puts His arm around us, you are part of the family regardless of your feelings from day to day. If you belong to Christ, you are part of the family. In recent weeks, we have been thinking of that little word, in. And right at the beginning, in the family, what it means to be in the family and in the faith and in the body. And then, of course, we were on another side line of that this morning in the vine. And our Heavenly Father, He wants us to experience what our Lord Jesus talked about. In the verses we have just read in John 10, verse 27 through 29, where He says, My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. And I give unto them eternal life, and they shall never perish, neither shall any man pluck them out of my hand. My Father which gave them me is greater than all, and no man is able to pluck them out of my Father's hand. Now, you can see the kind of security and fortification and power that is throbbing through those words. We're in the hand of Christ and clasped by the hand of the Father, so we've God the Son and God the Father, and they're saying... You are not going to be plucked out of our hands. But I've heard people say, and I'm sure you have as well, ah, but yeah, we understand that. We admit that. We have no beef at all against that. But we can wriggle out of His hand. We can worm our own way. We can fall and we can feel and we can get out of that grip. When they built the first section of the Golden Gate bridge. There was no safety net then to protect the workers who were constructing that great bridge. And so, 23 workers fell to their deaths in the dangerous waters far down below that Golden Gate Bridge. 
So the city of San Francisco decided we're going to invest here, and they invested an enormous amount of money to put a safety net under the next section of the bridge. But once that safety net was in place, only a handful of workers ever needed it. It was rather an amazing thing. Of course, it was brilliant. That was soon. The work went faster. Workers could concentrate on their jobs, and they were not standing up there maybe getting the occasional, if not the frequent, case of the jitters, looking over and thinking, I, if I fall, will die. To be a productive Christian, you need to know that your future is secure. If you're going to be able to focus on your immense task that lies in front of you, that is to reach out in evangelism, trying to win the world for Christ, you can't afford to be distracted by worries and concerns about your own future. You need to focus on the present. And that's why eternal security, and we define our terms here, is so invaluable and important. It allows our fears to be dealt with. It gives us confidence for the job at hand, and it offers the emotional stability that we need. And I'm convinced there are some people, and I'm talking here not on a theological sovereignty of God level. I'm talking here on a purely human level. There are some people who feel, well, can I ever make a decision for Jesus Christ? Can I commit myself here? Because I don't believe for a second that I can hold out on this path. It's too demanding. There is no way. And you've heard them say, I would love to be saved, but I fear I can't keep it. Many persons have said that to me, and that fear that they won't have the strength, won't have the knowledge, won't have the endurance to keep plowing on and remaining a Christian. It is a natural fear. It's not a biblical fear. It's not a proper fear, but it is a natural fear. But if we can get to grips with the nature of what God's salvation really is, then we will know that the God who has put such energy into saving us is not going to drop us down or let us down. So it seems good to take the topic that we have tonight. And to begin with, what we're going to do is get a proper perspective on eternal salvation, a proper perspective on eternal salvation. So, what we're doing really is defining our terms here. Whenever we look at this vital issue of eternal security, then we need, first of all, to define our terms. Eternal security is for believers. It is no good for hypocrites. It is no good for professors of religion who do not possess Christ. It is no safety net for the hypocrite or for the false professor. It is only for those who are genuine believers in the Lord Jesus Christ, who have received Him, John 1 and 12, into their hearts by faith and repentance. Those who are born again, those who have been made partakers of the divine nature, now that person will not become a lost soul. That person. 
Now, there's an objection coming onto the table, and I can almost anticipate it because I've heard it so many times before. And some people will say, well, you know, I've known people in my life experience, and they have shown all the signs of being saved all the boxes that we could ever put before them, filled out the checklist that we would have thought, well, a Christian is this and this and this and this, and they would have marked their card the whole way down that card. But you know what? They no longer, I know where they are, I know what they're doing. They have no longer any interest in spiritual things at all. You won't find them in church. But you know something? They used to attend church. They used to sit at the communion table. They took part in the prayer meeting. I heard them pray, somebody will say. Maybe they were baptized, went on to hold some kind of an office within the church. And we were, that person will say, we were totally persuaded all around that they were genuine Christians. But they're sitting out in the cold today, no interest at all in the things of God. I spoke to a person recently who admitted a period of maybe 10 years in their life when they were, as they termed it, backslidden. And they said they had at that time, they had taken a kind of a twisted delight in pointing out the faults of this one and that one and putting up theological debates and arguments. And they were totally cold of heart, but they had a grasp of the truth. And they just delighted to be flies in the ointment. But the Lord brought them back and broke them down and smashed their pride and took what they called the twistedness out of them and the old formality and the deadness in their heart and revived them again. But these other people who have done all the things that I've just mentioned, who have shown every sign, but now have absolutely no interest in the things of God, the high probability is those people were never saved. In my opinion, and our Lord was talking about somebody, not nobody, in Matthew chapter 7, the verse 22 and 23, He said, Many will say unto me in that day, Lord, Lord, have we not prophesied in thy name, and in thy name have cast out devils, and in thy name done many wonderful works, and then will I profess unto them, I never knew you. Depart from me, ye that work iniquity. Now, notice Jesus didn't say there, I once knew you, but I'm afraid you've lost it. He says he never knew them. Never knew them in that special, saving, intimate way. They may have done all of these religious things and are listed here in Matthew chapter 7, but the fact of the matter is, foundational level, they never knew God. They turned away from Him, and they had never eternal life. John Trapp, an old Puritan preacher, in this day and age we will talk about people who shoot from the hip, and if ever there was a Puritan preacher who shot from the hip, John Trapp would have been the one. And he hit the target every time. And here's what he said. Re referencing our Lord's words in Matthew 7, 22, 23, I knew you well enough for black sheep, or rather for reprobate goats. I knew you for hirelings and hypocrites, 
But I never knew you with a special knowledge of love, delight, and complacency. I never acknowledged, never approved, never accepted of your persons and performances. Every church has had people through its history who have joined, been baptized, seemed to live to God and for His way for a while, but then they turned aside. And many of them were never saved. And if they left the faith and stayed away, with each day that passes, we are becoming increasingly convinced they never were in Christ. That's not merely an opinion or some observation you or I can make. It's the unmistakable message that John gives us in 1 John 2 and verse 19. They went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would no doubt have continued with us. But they went out that they might be made manifest that they were not all of us. If those people had really been Christians, they would have remained in the faith. But the reason why many fall away is because they were never truly saved. They did not lose their salvation because they never had it to lose. Judas, for example, did not lose his salvation. The Bible says Jesus knew from the beginning that Judas did not believe in Him. But for those who do really know Him, then the joys of eternal salvation are theirs. But that's getting the perspective on this, a proper perspective on eternal salvation, particular pledges about eternal salvation. What is this based on? We can't teach this doctrine on the basis of thin air. It needs to have a foundation. On what basis do we teach that Christ's salvation is eternal? Well, He has promised, promised us eternal security. Paul knew that nothing could separate him from the Father, and so we, we were in for a while this morning. We were in Romans chapter 8, and we mentioned in passing there were 50 blessings. You can trace out right through the entirety of the chapter in Romans 8 that if you saturate your soul with them, fill your mind with them, meditate upon them, and really let them sink right into your heart you will be wonderfully blessed. But right at the end of the chapter, in verse 38 and 39, he says, For I am persuaded that neither death, life, angels, principalities, powers, things present, things to come, height, depth, any other creature shall be able to separate us, shall be able to separate us from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. And so Paul, he lists all the potential opponents here, all of the adversaries, all of the dangers, all of the threats, and then he concludes, there isn't anything that can separate the true child from his God. Death can't do it. If you die, you'll still belong to the Lord. Life can't do it. God will continue to be with you, come what may. Angels can't do it, not even the fallen ones. Kings cannot do it. There's no power on earth that can separate you from the Lord. God's Word makes us a promise. If our faith is in Christ, if we have truly turned to Him with our hearts, we belong to Him. 
an old woman in the southern states of America. She was poor, she was ignorant, but she was confident that she was going to heaven. What a somebody! Nobody knows anything about you. And if you go to hell, let us tell you, the whole universe will be ignorant of that fact. Nobody will know. Yes, mister, she said. It won't make any difference to the universe, but it will make a great difference to the Lord. His honor, if I should go to hell, his honor would be gone because he has given his word, given a promise. What do we base it on? God's promise also preservation. God does not specialize in beginning a work and then going off the job and leaving it. He completes what he has begun. And so Paul writes in Philippians 1 and 6, being confident of this very thing, that he which hath begun a good work in you will also perform it until the day of Jesus Christ. When you were saved, God began that good work in you. He called you. The Holy Spirit had shown you you were a sinner in need of God's salvation. He had convicted you of sin. He had converted you by helping you understand the gospel. He was the one who put faith and repentance, God's gifts, brought them onto your heart and therefore enabled you to receive the Lord Jesus Christ. But He's not just the convictor, not just the converter. He is also the completer doesn't start anything that he does not intend to finish. Remember what our Lord said? This man began to build, but was not able to finish. And he regarded that person who began but couldn't complete as a fool. And Christ our Lord is no fool. He will persevere in the lives of his children and complete the good work that he has begun. So there's promise and there's preservation. And there's also, of course, to go back a step, predestination. And we're still in Romans 8 for this. Romans 8, 29 and verse 13. For whom he did foreknow, he also did predestinate to be conformed to the image of a son, that he might be the firstborn among many brethren. Moreover, whom he did predestinate, them he also called, and whom he called, them he also justified, and whom he justified, them he also glorified. Notice how it's all coming at us in the past tense. We are creatures of time. God operates in eternity. He's the Alpha and Omega, the beginning and the end. He can tell the end from the beginning. He knows how it's all going to end. And so there are five links in this golden chain here. Foreknowledge, predestination, calling, justification, glorification. He determined these people will be like Jesus Christ, conformed into his image. And to that end, he predetermined their destiny. He planned out what was going to happen to them. And if you're predestined to be in heaven, then be in heaven you will be. If God's plan and purpose is to make you like Jesus Christ, then be like him you will. 
You can't be in hell and be like Jesus Christ. So the passage here makes it very plain that in the eyes of God, if you are His child, He already sees you. The completed article, glorified, He's picturing us already in heaven. Not just that someday, sometime, possibly you will be glorified, but He's talking past tense here. You see, your salvation didn't begin with you. It began before the foundation of the world. And that's what predestination is all about. We sang about it tonight. Joy floods my soul. For Jesus has saved me, freed me from sin that long had enslaved me. His precious blood He gave to redeem. Now I belong to Him. Now I belong to Jesus. Jesus belongs to me. Not for the years of time alone, but for eternity. Predestination, one of the reasons why. And also perfection. Perfection. And I'm talking not about us, but about Him. Because when I read in Hebrews 10, the verse 14, these are the words before me, for by one offering he hath perfected forever them that are sanctified by that one offering at Calvary, the pouring out of a soul unto death, that purging, cleansing stream that was opened by that. He made his people perfect or complete forever. Not just for time. Just, just for a month or two or a year or two, but forever. Some people talk as if being a Christian is kind of a best foot forward and a new start and turning, off a new, turning over a new leaf and all of that and really nothing more. It's not turning over a new leaf, it's beginning a new life. As a Christian, I'm made perfect in God's sight, not just Given a new start, I am granted a new nature. Have you ever in your study of the Scriptures found somebody, anybody, getting saved twice? The folks who think you can lose your salvation believe that you can be born again and again and again. I remember as a young fellow being in a gospel tent mission. And a well-meaning individual gave his testimony. I was saved, gave the date, sanctified fully, gave the date, saved, because he lost his salvation and his entire sanctification, went to the wall as well at a time in his life. So he gave another date, a third date. And that was the second time that he was saved. And then he gave a fourth date when he was fully sanctified again. And he ended with that unfortunate phrase that, kind of routine whenever you hear a testimony, and by God's grace, I mean to go on. And I'm sitting there thinking, what? Being saved and then sanctified, unsaved, unsanctified, saved again, sanctified again. I mean, that's a terrible way to go. And I, for one, was locked in that kind of theological system for a good part of my early years. And it was confusion. But there's nobody in the Bible ever you read of got saved 
twice by one offering, Jesus has perfected us forever. I'm not perfect in the flesh. I'm not perfect day to day, but I am perfect in God's eyes because I'm covered by a perfect sacrifice, and I'm covered by a perfect righteousness. I think of Romans 4, the verse 5 to 8, but to him that worketh not, but believeth on him that justifieth the ungodly, his faith is counted for righteousness, even as David also describeth the blessedness of the man unto whom God imputeth righteousness without works, saying, Blessed are they whose iniquities are forgiven and whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man to whom the Lord will not impute sin. We're not saved by doing good works. We're not unsaved by bad ones, though God does not encourage us or give us a license at any time. Now you're saved, you can do as you please. Some people have misinterpreted this entirely, and they've come with that very convenient get-out. Well, now that I'm saved, I can sin all I like. No, you can't, because if that's your attitude, you're just proving you're a hypocrite. That's all you're doing. The child of God is a new creature with new desires, and those new desires don't say, I'd love to just keep doing all I've ever done before. But it's nice to have the back pocket license that, you know, the wheels fall off and I die, then I'm glory bound. Does not work like that. Another particular pledge is that a position. We have a new position in Christ. Many times you've heard the verse, 2 Corinthians 5 and verse 17, Therefore, if any man be in Christ, he is a new creature. Old things are passed away. Behold, all things are become new. The old creation was old Adam back in the Garden of Eden, his children, his descendants. The new creation, Jesus Christ and his children. Behold, I, he says, and the children which God has given me. If you're in Christ, you're a part of this new creation of his. And if you're a part of Christ in him by saving faith, then you lose your relationship with the Father, when Jesus loses his relationship with the Father, and he will never lose that. When God told Noah and his family build the ark, he gave them a safe place to live for the amount of days that they were in there. They weren't saved because of Noah's weather forecasting prowess or because of Noah's shipbuilding skills. They were saved because God put them in a safe position inside the ark. During that long period on the ark, Noah may have fallen down many times, but he never fell out of the ark. God put him inside, closed the door, protected him. And that's what John 10, 27, 29 is all about. God closing the door clasping his hands, shutting us in, encasing us, position. But not only that, possession. I'm thinking of John 5 and verse 24, verily, verily, Jesus is speaking, I say unto you, he that heareth my word and believeth on him that sent me hath, has 
everlasting life, and shall not come into condemnation, but is passed from death unto life. If you or I believe in Jesus Christ, have repented of our sins, are found in Him tonight, then we have everlasting life. We possess it. We're not given a 10-year policy that is going to expire. We are given eternal life, which we will possess forever. If you or I could lose it, then you couldn't possibly describe it as eternal. Our eternal life doesn't kick into play when we die. We possess it now as a believer in Christ. And that's what our Lord is teaching in John 5 and 24 and many other passages as well. But we move from possession to petition. As a believer in Christ, I am wonderfully comforted in every law of life to know that Jesus is praying for me, interceding for me. Do I have proof of that? Yes, I do. In that high priestly prayer of His recorded for us in John 17, our Lord prays, for example, I pray not for the world, verse 9, but for them, for them which Thou hast given me, for they are Thine. And then He goes on in verse 15 and later in 20, I pray not that Thou shouldest take them out of the world, but that Thou shouldest keep them from the evil. And in 20, Neither pray I for these alone, but for them also, which shall believe in me through their word. Do you know what? Basic line. Jesus never prayed a prayer that went unanswered. Not a single one, for he always prayed in the will of God. And he prays here, my people, keep them from the evil. And specifically, prayers that they would be kept safe. William Bright put it like this, one offering, single and complete, with lips and hearts, we say, and what he never can repeat, he shows forth day by day. So he, who once atonement wrought, our priest of endless power, presents himself for those he bought in that dark noontide are his manhood pleads where now it lives on heaven's eternal throne and where in mystic power he gives his presence to his own that petition his repeated intercession undergirds my salvation and then what about the thought of power that comes in first peter 1 the verse 3 to 5 where the apostle says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, which according to his abundant mercy hath begotten us again unto a lively hope by the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance incorruptible and undefiled, and that fadeth not away, reserved in heaven for you. All right, so we are saved, verse 3. We're headed for glory, verse 4. But... We have a road to travel to get there. How are we going to keep on the way? Verse 5, who are kept by the power of God through faith unto salvation, ready to be revealed in the last time. We are kept by the power of God. Now, that really encourages me because I know the devil, though he has tried to do it again and again, the devil cannot thwart this. Christ's power is well above the devil's power. 
there are some people going about in our country tonight, and they believe in something called the sovereignty of Satan. And they think they're exercising demons here, there, and everywhere. Spiritual ghostbusters. Just to put themselves on a level above anybody else. We have this special power. Don't be calmed. Christ's power means the devil is not sovereign. But also, this notion about, and we mentioned it earlier, wriggling free from his hands and all of that, it really is a line of folly. Because John 10, 28 promises we will never perish. Doesn't matter what the devil does. Doesn't matter what anybody else does. We can't even destroy ourselves. Do you know what? That phrase, they shall never perish literally rendered means they cannot destroy themselves because the good shepherd takes good care of us, his sheep, and we are kept secure by the power of God. These are some of the particular pledges in closing. We'll mention some more just in one quotation. But the proper perspective on eternal salvation, the particular pledges about eternal salvation, and thirdly, the problem passages about eternal salvation. Some people are quite convinced that even though they might go along and understand where I'm coming from with all that has been said, they're quite convinced they can turn up a scripture or two that just sets that on its head and puts a bit of a buckle in my eye on this one. It's always a safe rule that if you or I come to a passage and it seems to be contradicting the rest of Holy Scripture, that then that passage needs further study. And my pride, as I come to it, needs to be humbled. And my prejudices need to be set aside. And if there are any errors, then the errors are not God's. They're all mine. I'm the one making the mistake. I'm the one who has misread. I'm the one who is misunderstanding. Because Scripture interprets Scripture. And it never does contradict itself. So somebody will come and they'll bring up, as they have done, Second Peter chapter 2, verse 20 to 22, for if after they have escaped the pollutions of the world through the knowledge of the Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, they are again entangled therein and overcome, the latter end is worse with them than the beginning, for it had been better for them not to have known the way of righteousness than after they had known it to turn from the holy commandment delivered unto them. But it has happened unto them according to the, to the true proverb, the dog is turned to his own vomit again and the sow that was washed to her wallowing in the mire. Now some people say, that passage surely teaches a see if person can be lost again. Now, when we carefully read it, it actually teaches the opposite. For if after they had escaped the pollutions of the world through the knowledge 
of the Lord. Here's a person who's been living in sin, and then they, they, they pull back, and they, they hear about Jesus. They recognize, well, that's the proper way to go. But notice, never at any point in this text are they said to be actually saved. They heard the gospel. They recognized the truth that was in it, but that never took root in their life. They turned over a new leaf, never received a new life. They became, the word is entangled in the world. And that word entangled means to weave something into a pattern. And there's no moving away from that. They know the truth, but the truth is never allowed to change them. They're in bondage to sin. And they're so readily and freely entangled again. And it's why Peter says it would have been better for them if they'd never heard the gospel, because now that they've heard it and made a little step or two in the direction of it, now to go right back again without receiving Christ, they have knowledge, greater accountability on the day of judgment, more will be required of them because you knew what was the right thing to do. You never did it. Now, Peter uses two examples that are very vital in getting the full picture here. He talks about a dog who returns to his own vomit. If you have a dog, you'll know that's what they do. Repugnant though it seems to us, it's what they do. An unsaved person can sit in church, sing the hymn, sound holy and righteous, but as soon as they're back in the world, they return to the old sword and old sin that they enjoyed before. They've never been changed by God. And then Peter brings in another picture, that of the pig. And you can bring that pig in and corner it all the best to you, scrub it clean, brush its tusks, dress them in a fancy pink ribbon, but as soon as you let that porker loose again, he'll be rolling in the mud. That's the nature of pigs. And a mere scrubbing on the outside does nothing to change his inner desire. The dog may feel better, the pig may look better, but there's been no change in either. And that's the point that Peter is making. Another problem passage in Matthew 24, verse 11 to 13, and many false prophets shall rise and shall deceive many, and because iniquity shall abound, the love of many shall wax cold, but he that shall endure unto the end, the same shall be saved. A lot of people come to that verse, and they actually manage to read it backwards. And what they think the verse is teaching is this, people are saved because they endure. Well, that's wrong. People endure because they are saved. That's right. Endurance is the mark, the evidence of a real life changed. I'm not saved going to heaven because I have endured so much. Whatever I have endured, I have endured because I am saved. God worked a miracle in my life. He changed me. That has allowed me to endure. He causes me to endure. You remember him? 
Luke 22, the verse 31, 32, the Lord says to Peter, Simon, Simon, behold, Satan hath desired to have you, that he might sift you as wheat. But I have prayed for thee, that thy faith fail not. And when thou art converted, strengthen thy brethren. He's saying, I'm praying for you, Peter. And because I'm praying, your faith won't fail. You're going to endure. And Peter did endure. Yes, he fell. He trembled. He cursed. He swore that he didn't know Jesus on occasion. But ultimately, he endured. Eternal salvation. Can I compare it for illustration purposes to an elastic band God puts it around you? When you are converted, you may pull and stray away, but he keeps drawing you back. He did it with Peter. He didn't do it with Judas. Judas was trusted by the others. He'd pulled the wool over the eyes of the other disciples because they put him in charge of the money bag. He was respectable. But Jesus said of his disciples, there are some of you that believe not. John 6 and verse 64, and Judas was in his eye when he said it. Jesus prayed Peter's faith would endure. It did. Judas didn't have any faith, and our Lord never prayed that anything that Judas had would endure. We were in the passage this morning, John 15, verse 5 to 8, I am the vine, ye are the branches, he that abideth in me, and I in him the same bringeth forth much fruit, for without me ye can do nothing. And somebody will say, now read the rest. If a man abide not in me, he is cast forth as a branch, and is withered, and men gather them, and cast them into the fire, and they are burned. What does that say? Well, surely that disproves eternal security. Somebody who was close to Christ was cut off and thrown away down into hell. What our Lord is saying, I am leaving you, disciples. This was on the verge of the cross. You need to abide in me. You need to love one another. You need to withstand the world. And in the context of all of that in John 15, Matthew Henry asks, were they really united to Christ by faith? They would bear fruit. But being only tied to him by the thread of an outward profession, though they seem to be branches, they will soon be seen to be dry ones, Unfruitful professors are unfaithful professors, professors, and no more. And very quickly, and you could preach a whole message on it, will not. Hebrews 6, 4 to 9, possibly the most misunderstood passage of all. It talks about apostasy. It's impossible for those who were once enlightened, have tasted of the heavenly gift, made partakers of the Holy Ghost, and have tasted the good word of God. Hey, that person sounds really saved, and the powers of the world to come. Impossible if they shall fall away to renew them again unto repentance, seeing they crucify to themselves the Son of God afresh and put him to an open shame. But note, just for context, verse 8, that which beareth thorns and briars is rejected 
And now on to cursing, whose end is to be burned. We're tied right into John chapter 15 again here. But, beloved, we are persuaded better things of you. Those who were the beloved, loved of Christ, were on a different level to those that have just been described here. We are persuaded better things of you and things that accompany salvation, though we thus speak. But hold on a moment. If this is teaching, as some allege, that you can lose your salvation, then it must also be teaching that if you lose it, you can never regain it. You can never be saved again. And I don't believe that my friends in the Arminian camp would go as far as that. In fact, I know they wouldn't. But if that's the line they take on Hebrews 6, that's the consistent line they must hold. If you're teaching from this, you can lose your salvation, then you must also be consistent and teach on that if you lose it, you can never regain it, be saved at all in the future. What we have described here is people who come to the threshold of salvation, see the truth, the whites of the eyes of the truth, but then turn around and deliberately reject what they know to be true, which is why we're told they were enlightened. They had seen the truth, as Balaam did in Numbers 24 and 3. They tasted the good word of God, a bit like the cook. And here's the cook, and he's in the kitchen, and he's making a sauce. And he puts the tip of his finger down into the sauce, and he tastes it and spits it out tasted the good Word of God. That's how they tasted it. The Holy Spirit had gripped their heart. They were partakers of inferior gifts and operation of the Holy Spirit. We have those, Matthew 7, already referred to, and they're coming up and they're saying, Lord, we have we preached in your name. In your name we've done many wonderful things, and some people have done things in God's name but have never been united to Christ. And they've known something of the powers of the world to come. They've known about heaven and hell, maybe a glimpse of heaven they've seen and a flash of hell they have seen, but they have turned away. How do we deal with Hebrews 6? I'm going to give you three quotes from Matthew Henry. You can study it through further with him. These lengths, hypocrites may go. And after all, turn apostates. It is not here said of them that they were truly converted or that they were justified. That's a fair point as well. True saints, he says, also for our encouragement may fall frequently and foully, but yet they will not totally nor finally fall from God. But these people in Hebrews 6, they are apostate. They fall fully and finally. And Henry concludes the purpose and the power of God, the purchase and the prayer of Christ, the promise of the gospel, the everlasting covenant that God has made with them, ordered in all things, ensure the indwelling of the Spirit, the immortal seed of the Word. These are there. That is the child of God, the genuine child of God who was born again of the Spirit. These are their security, but the tree that has not these roots will not stand. Tell me. Are you the tree that is rooted in Christ? 
or do you not have roots? Do you possess Him as your Savior? In your heart or just with your mouth professing? You need to come to Him for that free salvation, full final salvation that He so readily gives.